Life of Change podcast series. I'm your host, Marvin O'Kella. As of June 2020, following the untimely death of George Floyd, I have taken on the role of diversity and inclusion officer for the Halifax Wanderers. Since that time, I've hosted a number of Zoom calls with Wanderers fans, members, partners, and others in our community. As of 2021, we have started the podcast as a means of continuing the conversation in a safe space. My aim is that by having these tough and sometimes awkward conversations, we can begin to break down barriers and strengthen a culture of diversity and inclusion. Today, my guest is Paul Martin. Paul is an ex-soccer player, coach, and administrator who works for the Canadian Soccer Association, as well as Ontario Soccer. Paul is on a diversity sub-advisory committee for Ontario Soccer and is a board member of Canada Soccer holding the title of Director of Ontario. In addition, Paul is the founder of Black Coaches Canada. So welcome, Paul. That's a lot of titles you hold there, my friend. Uh, titles don't mean nothing, man. It's the work you do, right? <laughs> definitely, definitely. Well, I'm sure you got those titles as a result of your hard work, and I appreciate you joining us today. Thank you for having me, right? We'll jump right into it, Paul. Uh, what, what is your background, and how did you begin uh, your journey in this beautiful game called football? Sure. Uh, my journey begins at the beginning. My love of football from four years of age. You know, a little kid playing in the grass in house league. Uh, you can't call it house league anymore in this country. It's now grassroots, right? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Interesting how, you know, titles and, and labels change as we go through time, right? But um, uh, that's where my, my story really begins because I had a love of the game. That love of the game was passed down to me by my father, who was also a big uh, manager and administrator. My dad's from Trinidad and used to never play the game, but uh, always helped to manage, love to manage uh, football and cricket. Uh, you know, he's listening up to cricket the wee hours of the night on the radio. So I grew up in a home that kind of loves sports specifically cricket and, uh, and uh, football, but I wasn't very good at cricket. Um, <laughs> I love football because I was playing from since a young age. Um, right. As I got older, it was, became more difficult because uh, a lot of my friends started to uh, get called into play for like the top teams, but I mm -hmm. wasn't because I was small. I never grew. They used to call me Mouse. Mouse was my nickname until I didn't grow until, you know, I hit grade, uh, grade 11. Mm -hmm. Ooh, the, girls, the girls came then. No. <laughs> 11, right? Uh, because I was very, very small. So I had gotten cut at, uh, at 15, going to 16. And uh, it was kind of devastating. I didn't know what to do. I went and played for the last place team. We got hammered. It was a St. Andrews soccer club. And I said to the coach one day, angrily, I was small still anyways, that the goalie sucked and we get, we're getting slapped because the goalie was no good. And he said, fine, you go net then. And I said, fine, I will. So I went net and then, you know, we still lost, you know, so it's not a positive story, but the score, <laughs> went, the score went way down. So that year I became a goalie. And then one of my dad's friends saw me, he says, why don't you come play men's soccer? I was like, men's soccer? What are you talking about? I'm only 15, 16. It's kind of disheartened. So anyways, I went after that season and started playing with the men. He got my butt handed to me and learned very quickly how to play with the big boys. So by the time I was 18, 19, playing in the men's league, I uh, played for my first team was Malvern Science. Woohoo! You know, we won the MJ men's league back then, which was just uh, district soccer. But I was yeah. playing with guys, you know, five and six and seven years older than me, right? Assuming you weren't a goalie anymore at this point. Not anymore. But guess what? I was still the backup goalie. Uh. <laughs> and then, like I said, I had the growth spurt. So I went from like, you know, five foot to five foot nine in like one, one year. Mm -hmm. and, um, I've been the same height ever since. So that kind of got me baptism by fire into soccer. And then I got really interested in scholarships and trying to get a scholarship. And I had friends who had scholarships. And I got, uh, I started late to the process. And I got a lot of offers, but I didn't get any, any uh, full rides. I had nine offers, all partial scholarships to like top schools and stuff. But I did a lot of work. Back then, you're on a bus from Toronto to Buffalo, Buffalo to, you know, um, sometimes Pittsburgh or, you know, or into New York, Greyhound, you know, all myself, no parents, nobody else around. 
you know, and writing letters, letters, remember those things? <laughs> oh yeah, man. It's, 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 that's impressive considering you were cut at 15, 16 to get all those scholarships yeah. though. But you know, it didn't work out. Um, so I ended up, uh, my mom had married um, uh, a gentleman who's a professor and uh, my stepdad, that's Ian, Ian Baxter. He's actually one of the most famous artists in all of Canada. I've been given the order of Canada and knighted as the person who ushered in contemporary, uh, you know, contemporary art in all of Canada. So you can go Google him, Ian Baxter. Call him the Ann man. <laughs> That's my stepdad, Ian. You're awesome. Ian. And so they moved to Windsor. And so I decided to uh, to go to school because I got free free uh, education because he's a professor. So it was like a scholarship. Hmm. And then uh, I didn't play any soccer my first year. Just kind of hung out and partied and had fun. Yeah. And then uh, somebody saw me playing uh, rec ball with, um, uh, you know, with uh, all the guys. I was kind of, you know, disheartened because I didn't end up getting the scholarship I wanted, although I had a lot of offers because mm -hmm. um, I didn't, couldn't afford it, didn't want to pay for it. And then, uh, you know, somebody saw me playing that year, you know, campus rec. So campus rec is good, you know, keeping you active and whatnot. And uh, said, come try out. So I said, I'll come try out uh, as a walk-on. And then I did that and I made the team yeah. and started every game except for two games across four, four seasons. Wow. Um, you know, into playoffs. Back then, we used to play 22 games in a season, not like now 10 games. So yeah. pretty much played, I would say, close to about over 100 and something games and only started and didn't start in two of them. And one was because of a red card and one was because the coach had disciplined me. I went to a party the night uh, night before in uh, Detroit with some buddies and came back. <laughs> and said, you're late, Martin. You're sitting the bench today. I was like, what are you talking about, coach? Got to be here on time, right? I so love that from the coach, though. Yeah, That's... Discipline is a big thing, right? Yeah. So for me, from there, I went into uh, trying to play a little semi-pro in Detroit. But then uh, my girlfriend at the time, who uh, who was living with me, and you know, said we're going to move back to Toronto and get married. Um, in my second year in, in in playing for the U, I went across. And we were had a, we had a preseason game against um, uh, Eastern Michigan. We had a good program back then for for soccer, football, and I was offered a full ride. I was like, man, now I finally get my full scholarship, so it's possible. Second year, you know, awesome. get a full ride. And then uh, my girlfriend says, "You're going where?" <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I guess we're not going for that scholarship anymore. I just stay, stay in Windsor, right? Mm -hmm. So I didn't end up taking the scholarship, stayed in Windsor, finished up my ball. Like I said, played a little semi-pro uh, with Detroit Wheels back then, and then uh, then moved back to Toronto. So and what was what position were you playing at this point after your stint in Nets? Or are you mainly... Uh, yeah, so mainly defender. Uh, I, I play uh, center back and wing, and wing back. I was quick, not fast, but quick. You know, get mm -hmm. forward, get down the line, deliver crosses. You know, even still to this day, you still kind of do that. You know, um, so I still play with the, with the old boys over over 35s, although I'm over 50 now. Yeah. I'm, uh, you know, that, that's kind of my story for playing. And but, you know, getting into coaching now and administration, I hadn't been interested in it at all. Um, I kind of left the game for a while and then I got back into it and, you know, helped to be one of the foundation guys of a, of a club called GS United, uh, which, you know, has gone on to win some national championships on yeah. the men's and women's side. Um, my, my brother uh, created their women's program and I came to join the first year. Um, another friend of ours created there over 35 and then I was uh, with them that year. Was there many women's programs at that time? There was a, quite a few women's programs around, but not the way that we wanted to do it at the time, you know, but the quality and the backing and whatnot, the soccer back then, you know, it's still the same today. Uh, the issue is, you know, you have resources, you have access to resources. The teams that generally have the access to resources and funds and facilities and whatnot are the teams that just overall in general do better, right? Mm. Senior soccer, you know, anything past under 17, 18 back then was, one person funding it, um, you know, and that person funding it, if they decide not to fund it or back it any longer, it kind of, tough. right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But whenever you had that, you know, the more backing you got, the better you did. It's just, that's just the way it was. And you look at it now, you look at the European Super League, as much as we think 
about that. I know we'll touch on that a bit later. But as much as you think what's going on there, it's the same thing. It's about, you know, that's what's happened to the EPL and to these leagues. It's, you know, ones that are getting funded from all this money are seeing more success, right? Hmm. Um, so, so for me at the time, you know, I did a lot of stuff in soccer, but I got started because my wife said to me, hey, you know, your son's playing soccer. The coach's not that good. They're upset. Why don't you go coach? Like, no, I'm not coaching. I, I just go and sit down and watch, you know, fold my legs and let my son, you know, play. My daughter picked the grass. All my kids played house league the first year. She says, yeah. no, you got to coach. It's like, okay, fine. So I started coaching and I fell in love with it. Yeah. So I started coaching from the very bottom house league with the kids on, you know, the once a week practice and went from there, you know, to make a long story short, we did house league, then all-star and our all-star teams were beating the rep teams. And then we made a rep team and we're beating the, we're division, what, three, we're beating division two and so on and so forth. And so I kind of just got into coaching that way. So it's very kind of, rewarding. Yeah, my, my kind of my my start in that it was like I've been fortunate to uh, to have started from the very bottom uh, in coaching and, and also playing. So I kind of understand all the different levels. I mean, it's changed now a little bit different in a sense, but you know, I'm I'm a real old school guy that came from the community clubs kind of thing that understands you know all aspects of the game, not just high performance. High performance, what we call is being it's going away now. They call it soccer for life, but what we call back then competitive mm-hmm. wasn't necessarily high performance, but it's not necessarily soccer for life. It's competitive soccer where most of your players come from, guys like myself, guys who might've got cut or didn't make the provincial team. We're good enough, but not really maybe late bloomers, maybe aren't seeing it, maybe gonna see you know, their, their, their acumen later in life. And it's unfortunate we're missing a lot of that because right now our focus in football is all about those top players from youngest ages. And there's all kinds of studies that show you that just because a person had phenomenal success at younger ages, it actually doesn't translate to older, older ages. A lot of times actually those people who are phenomenal at the youngest ages are super talented they're not the ones who are super talented at the older later age. on yeah there's definitely a, a burnout of sorts so for me there's a definite translation uh in the in the game and why i do what i do because at 15 16 that's where i had my troubles and so when i started my programming i want to make sure there's support for people in the community at those ages and stages that aren't we're not seeing and even as we're seeing it now we're seeing an eroding of services to that age and people are still trying to figure out how to provide services to really you know, really take off. And you look at a lot of kids, you look at Lonzo Davies, what age was he discovered at? Where did he mm. come from, right? It's not under six, under eight, you know what I mean? It's 15, yeah. 16, right? And, you know, sorry, I said Alfonso, not Alonzo, I said it wrong. Uh, so <laughs> when, you, when you look at it, you know, that age I still believe is very important, even yeah. in terms of mentorship, in terms of having somebody to look up to, in terms of having guidance, in terms of having, you know, um, assistance. And that's where we're, we're, we're finding. So, you know, I'm at odds with a lot of people in terms of, my belief, they believe you got to start a lot younger. I don't, I believe that if kids are good enough, they'll find their way. We have to keep kids in the sport. I agree with it, but we will find the talent at 15, 16, 17. They're all out there. You just need to really go look. Mm. You look across this great country in terms of international people coming in, in terms of kids playing in certain community areas that are undiscovered. They may not have what's called the pedigree, but the athleticism, the drive, the talent, it's there. And like I said, I, you know, you know, I give that example. There's, there's many others around like that. So that's kind of my start to soccer, uh, my initial journey as to how I got involved in the game, both as a player, but also as a coach and an administrator. That's awesome. That's, that's a, it's a great story. And I know that you did at some point in your story um, meet Steve Hart, who's our head coach for the Halifax Wanderers. Yeah. How did, how did uh, you and Steve get to know each other? It's interesting, uh, you know, just like a lot of, you know, your younger folks who are now coming in to, to look for mentors and to try to reach out to people. I did the same. I was getting into coaching. And I wanted to coach, you know, young men uh, specifically. And so I started reaching out to a lot of clubs and reaching out to friends. Hey, can I coach at the college university level? Can I coach here? Can I volunteer? Whatever. And then uh, a friend of mine, uh, Julian Carr, who's at Centennial College, 
Uh, he, he first actually told me he didn't have any room because uh, they were all full coaches. But if anything came in, in the future, he would definitely let me know. So right at the end of that season, he gave me a call and said, hey, you know, another friend of ours who's the assistant coach, that's Mark McKenzie. He's going to step down. I'd love to have you come in. So I was like, excellent. Let me come in. So I came in there to start coaching Centennial. Team wasn't very good his first years. It hadn't, hadn't won a game in like a year or two, tying and stuff like that. And I helped to turn that program around. And, you know, as part of our education for learning, we wanted to go to a lot of conferences. So I went to a conference, I think it was 2010 or 2011. Uh, I have to check my, my, my notes. I'm getting old now, right? <laughs> it was a coaching clinic in Kingston. And uh, Stephen Hart was one of the featured coaches. And so was, um, uh, so was um, John Herdman. So mm. I got a chance to go and meet both of them. And both of them treated me really well. I was able to strike up a conversation after uh, with Stephen and, you know, came to realize that he was from Trinidad, the same place I'm from, and had went to the same high school as my father. So we had a good, you know, a good, real good conversation initially there. And we kind of just struck up a friendship over the years, right? And it was kind of nice because, you know, he even gave me his contact information. A lot of people do that for you. No. Same thing too with Herdman. Herdman, you know, I, I approached him after we had a long talk and he gave me his email address. It was supposed to follow up, but ended up losing the piece of paper with the email address on it. Oh, no. <laughs> phones play a big part now. <laughs> yeah, nowadays, you don't need no paper and, you know, stick it in your bag and whatnot. I mean, we had phones back then, but it wasn't like nowadays, right? No. So, yeah. So I was able to meet him back then. Great guy. And, and you know, I've been been in touch just back and forth over the years. And uh, even when he went down to Trinidad, I went down a couple of times and was able to meet up with him when my son was trying out for the Trinidad national team. So it's funny because here's this guy from Canada coming in with this kid and the other coach look at who, who who's this guy and I walk up Steven he goes hey who the heck's this guy you know right? so it's kind of nice you know yeah Steve Steve's a great person uh, great coach just generally just great vibes being around that uh being around Steve for sure yeah you guys overall have done a really great job uh you know at the Wanderers in terms of you know just different aspects from what I can see on, on the outside of being not only just a coach but a fan to of uh of the CPL overall and also, you know, the different uh, brands within it. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, Steve's a big part of that. He's not just our head coach, but he's our general manager and he's really helped with the, the culture of the club as well as, you know, making sure that the on-field product is, is really good. So, you know, I don't think there's many coaches out there um, who would have been able to take a team from, from last place in 2019 to losing in the final in 2020 with such a quick turnaround, you know, so that's a really, Big credit to Steve and uh, and his knowledge and his wisdom that he brings to our club. So we're definitely lucky to, to have him and you're lucky to have met him. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because they also did a CPL tour whereby when the different teams were coming in, they had um, different coaches come and speak um, to you know any coaches that registered. So on a Friday night down the hotel, you know, West End of Toronto, um, I think it was about two years ago in the first year of the league, I was able to come to that interview as well, catch up with him where he was doing a talk with him and, and, and Tony. Um, you know, about uh, his role and, and how, how it is not only, like you said, as a coach, but also as a manager, just the aspects of, you know, trying to, uh, to, to really run, run a business uh, in football. And I think that's the kind of information that's definitely needed still within, you know, our communities to understand that it's much more than just, you know, as I say, you get older and a little more gray, uh, you know, it's not about the X's O's in the field. Yes, that's the end result, but, you know, it's about all the work that's being done behind the scenes and all the, all the people that are involved that, um, you know, end up making you successful, right? Definitely, definitely. And I mean, you, uh, you're doing similar in terms of pairing yourselves with people who can advise you and mentor you. And, uh, you know, on that topic, um, you know, you started something called Black Coaches Canada. How did that come to be? How did that come to fruition? Yeah, definitely, for sure. Uh, it was, we, we, thought, we thought it was a need because, you know, like it or not, the reality is we all have different lived experiences, some more challenging than others, some might say even, you know, downright racist, but, you know, these, these are the lived realities of coaches. But when we look at the statistics across the board, 
of you know black coaches and black soccer administration representation in this country it's almost non-existent that's why someone like Stephen was so important to be able to look up and see someone like me as he says you know i'm i'm, I'm kind of light so Stephen, we're, we're, we're what we call red red boy red man back over <laughs> You know, so at the end of the day, you know, the, the, the cultural diversity and mix in Trinidad is, is just, you know, so much all over the place. It's not like the labels we see today. Um, so in that, you know, it's really important to have the representation of people who look like you, sound like you, come from where you are. It's just part of the overall um, system, right? And we weren't seeing that. Uh, you know, when I look at uh, the League One, semi-pro league that uh, was started in Ontario, which is, you know, a great league to be in. I always wanted to be in it. I had my own experiences whereby I was supposed to, or thought I was going to get a team, did a lot of work across the years, but then that didn't materialize the opportunity. Had to continue to work further to get that opportunity, which eventually I did get. And I'm now the head coach at uh, the Pickering League One Ontario men's program at uh, in, 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 uh, in, in, in the league. Uh, wow. But also at the time I had partnered with, uh, with Windsor and Windsor is where I, again, I mentioned prior in the, in the interview, I'd went to school mm -hmm. and uh, knew a lot of the players because, you know, we all played in the same university and also club teams and, and, and whatnot. And so I knew the, the owner of, of the program down there and, you know, I was signed up as a kind of guest coach mm -hmm. uh, with the club. And at the time, there was no other black coaches in the league besides Rick Titus. So in one of the games, they asked me to come, you know, as a guest coach a couple of times I came in the one final game uh, towards the end of the season, they said, well, you couldn't make it. Could I take the reins of the team? That would be my, you know, my first chance to kind of coach, you know, at League One level, which was great, um, you know, and it was against North Miss where Rick Titus was coaching. So in that game, you know, here we are, you know, 15, how many teams in the league? I think 14, 15, whatever at the time, maybe maybe less 12 or something like that. I can't remember exactly, but we're the only two black coaches in the whole league, right? And you're not seeing any black uh, executive directors. You're not seeing, you know, very few black technical directors. And where is uh, Rick Titus from? Rick Titus also uh, right now works with Masters Football Club. He just won League One last year and uh you know well before prior to the pandemic and they'll be playing in the uh in the voyeur uh, sorry the, the the cup that um uh that you know uh, vaughn won the year, year before got in and got to play against uh, you guys at halifax so yeah so definitely masters and rick titus you know you know well 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 deserved well earned to them they'll be uh playing whenever it comes back around in that one game and we wish them well in that um but rick at the time was at uh, north mississauga um, coaching in North Miss at the time. So the game was against North Miss versus uh, versus Windsor. And the two of us met and then right, you know, in, in meeting there, we, you know, we have had a previous relationship, but, you know, the issue just really struck up a core with both of us. We had this conversation ongoing about the lack thereof and the need for representation of black coaches like us. I mean, even to come to see a game for League One where you see two black coaches head to head, you know what I mean? You're not seeing that, right? It happened uh, once again last year when I was at Pickering and he was at Masters before it was I was at Windsor and he was at, um, uh, he was at, um, uh, at North Miss, um, you know, so he ended up, uh, you know, winning that game was a very kind of close game was, was good. Went down to the, down to the wire. Um, but, you know, it's fun and it's good to see that representation, not just for us, but for the players, you know, around too as well. And for the fans to see that happening. Um, so, you know, this conversation got struck that, you know, we know this, there's a, there's a challenge. Um, we're looking statistically now at, representation in terms of participation numbers and at the highest level we're seeing you know depending upon what criteria close to 40 to 50 percent of the national team and you know performances at highest level provincial teams and whatnot are representation from our communities but when you look for that representation um, on the board of Canada soccer on the staff of Canada soccer on the board of Ontario soccer on the staff of Ontario soccer you know it's almost non-existent right yeah there's some a few but you know it's not like 
the proper representation should be there. And this is not something to blame Canada soccer, Ontario soccer at all. It's societal. It's what we're seeing yeah. in society. So in order for us to really move forward as a society, we have to address this concern, um, you know, and we have to do it in a way that brings about equity, not just equality. We yeah. have to do equity, which means that for such a long time, we haven't been given these advantages. And, you know, we know there's more than enough people who are qualified within our community to hold these positions and to do these things. Because oftentimes we just have to look, there, there's excellence there, right? Definitely. And, you know, I can name so many different people, you know, Stephen is exactly one in terms of the work he did at the national level as being a technical director and head coach for, for, for almost a decade, right? Yeah. Um, you know, but again, you know, these, these opportunities come far and few between. He'll even tell you that kind of how it, the opportunity came about for him, that opportunity was not the norm. Somebody had to go out on a limb and take a chance and do things differently for him to be able to walk through that opportunity. And it's the same thing with myself. And, you know, we want to make more opportunities that happen, you know, against the grain for more people from our community to have access. Because at the end of the day, uh, equality and diversity is good for the game. It's good for the country. It's good for all of us. Right. Definitely. Definitely agree. You know, yeah. When, when I, you know, played when I was younger, going to All-Stars at, you know, under 15 and under 16, the best teams um, that we played against, there was no coincidence that they were the most diverse. You know, the, the Quebecs and the Ontarios and the BCs were the most diverse teams. They had all sorts of representation of Black players, Asian players, white players, you know, South American players. And, and that's why they were successful. I don't think it's any secret that, you know, that's, that's how you breed success. So that's part of the demographics too, though, of the, the local areas too. We don't have representation across the country, right? And for, you know, for many communities, but that's changing now, right? And so, you know, and as you said, you know, creating pathways and access for those people who are in those communities. Because even though there is low numbers in some areas, you know, like Nova Scotia, it doesn't have the highest Black population, but it's how do you create access um, for those communities so that they can get the opportunity to succeed? Yeah, so, so Rick and I have been con having the conversation back and forth over the years. And then obviously, you know, um, even before George Floyd, we had uh, had a conversation about starting the organization together. And we actually started in, in, in prior to this because, um, you know, it was discussions around going on these boards and making change from a governor's perspective and, and policy perspective. So, you know, I had then decided to go and apply for the Board of Canada Soccer and were told by many that would never happen. And you know, there's never been a person you know, of color elected directly to the board as a, as a director. There's been independent directors appointed um, in Charmaine and another old lady before one, which is great, but we still are not seeing you know, us as a community buying in by having more and more, but that's gonna change as, as we're seeing now. So this conversation started then, I went through the whole process to get on Canada Soccer. That started happening at the same time, but obviously got slowed down by, by the pandemic. And then we were um, you know, planning to, to kick something off in, in March of that year. Um, Rick and I and, uh, and Marcus uh, who runs Southampton, uh, Academy and a few other people were in discussion and getting stuff going. And then um, uh, COVID hit. And then actually my wife got COVID and I got COVID. And oh, wow. we, had a little, we had a little scare by my wife almost passed away from COVID, which was kind of crazy going through all that, you know, seeing the worst of it, but, you know, came out of it, which is great. And Sorry to hear you. It's like they say, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? Yeah, exactly. So with that, and then also obviously George Floyd, what happened to George Floyd, you know, me personally, I just decided, hey, this is the time we got to really go for for making change, right? But for us, uh, you know, myself and Rick in the initial conversations and setting stuff up, we didn't want to make it pointed that it's all about protesting and taking a knee and wearing a team. Those things are all good and, and need to happen. But deeper than that, we wanted to have programming, we want to address advocacy, we want to address programming, we want to address uh, policy, you know, all the important things that make long lasting change. 
And, you know, we had to really sit down around the table as we brought others to the, uh, to, to the forefront and, and have those discussions, uh, you know, um, about what we should do. We reached out to a lot of people across the country trying to make sure there's true representation in almost every single market. We're talking from DC right back to Halifax, people in Quebec, people in Edmonton, people in Saskatchewan, you know, all across the country we're having these discussions. Obviously, by, you know, what was going on in the world, we were all able to kind of slow down and have the time to have these meaningful discussions because prior to that, we would all be on the football field, especially most of us who are, you know, engaged in the sports six, seven days a week and yeah. also every evening. So, you know, the times you have to meet in the evening to do, you know, your group work and your, you know, organization board work and whatnot, you know, most of us wouldn't have had that time. Yeah. So, you know, we look at it as a blessing that we're yeah. able to, 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 you know, come together and have these discussions and then formulate, uh, you know, a plan of how we, we go forward. Um, even in, in the midst of that, we realized too as well that there's also gender issues even in our own community. So we had to make sure before we even came up, we were, you know, pushing for a long time to make sure we had gender representation on our board as well, right? Um, so that's a big challenge as well. And we'll be doing a conference coming up in June addressing that very fact uh, as well, which we'll talk more about later, but it's called Women to the Forefront. It's okay. so all about making sure that women as well get an opportunity to, to be at the table and to hear their, their points of view and look at it from an intersectional standpoint on how we make long-lasting change, right? That's so, great stuff, Paul. And um, before you know, we move on to discussing a bit about the diversity work you've been doing, um, with Black Coaches Canada, you know, I, I saw the, the branding, you know, it's, it's, what is the symbolism there between the colors and even the, the hand that you, you chose for the, for the logo? Yeah, um, you know, when you look at it, I, I'm a big history study buff. And, um, uh, you know, in university, you know, I studied classical civilization. I was one class away from a minor in that. And so I study a lot of, uh, you know, history of people. I study a lot of movements, Black movements and whatnot. And, you know, the Black Power Fist, obviously Black Panthers and, you know, African uh, Revolutionary Party and also, um, you know, Marcus Garvey. And also you look at Stokely Carmichael. You know, you look at the history of these people in our, in our culture who, who, you know, tried to, to deal with oppression. Uh, you know, certain colors uh, throughout time have, have come to mean something from, from uh, you know, an African diasporic perspective. So the green obviously is for the land and our self-determination to be able to own land and have land and, you know, be able to determine our own, our own future within the context though of, of not talking about being separatist, but within the context of existing where we are in societies. Black for the color of our skin for what is defined as, as a collective Group doesn't mean that we all have the skin color black. Like I said, look at myself, it comes down to an ideological and also sociological construct. It's not even our own, but it allows us to at least be grouped as a culture, so to speak, right? And then red for the bloodshed, because we should never forget, you know, the sacrifices of our forefathers and those who went before us, right? When people think of bloodshed, they always think of it in a negative way, not necessarily for us, it's just more of a positive way, but also in that it stands for the passion that, um, you know, that we are going to have, you know, in terms of um, the sport and, you know, this, it's called a beautiful game for a reason, right? And Definitely. that we, we have around it. And the green also, when you look at, you know, land, it also stands for growth, right? Mm -hmm. Increase. And, you know, so when you look at these things, we want these colors tie into our main three statements around who we are. And they also um, uh, tie into, um, you know, what we were trying to do as a brand. I'm a marketing and branding person, and I fully believe in um, you know, in colors and what colors mean, right? Mm. The actual color means something. So the three fists, if you look at it, it's not just one fist, the first fist, it's a black and white fist. It's just to show the issues that we're all black and white, but also we're a collective community. There's two other fists behind it. Both those fists are in green because it shows growth. 
growth in unity, growth in our community. So it's not just a one-off thing. And then obviously the red flag, the Canadian, you know, all everybody knows the red flag, what needs to be Canadian behind there, but it's, we are Canadian, you know, for far too long, many of us don't consider or think, or, you know, other communities know us to be Canadian, but we are, we have a long history of being Canadian uh, in this country, um, all parts across the country. You know, um, even when we look at um, uh, Matthew da Costa, you know, out of um, uh, black history in, um, uh, in terms of what he meant in terms of uh, uh, members of exploring Canada, and think about it. He had he had he was a translator, and uh, translated for the Aboriginal Indigenous people and for the English, uh, Spanish, whatever. So that person had to know multiple languages, so had to have some contact with mm. people. And you don't just learn a language like that. You know what I mean? So yeah. you know, to even know at the very beginnings of the constructs of this country, we as a culture and as a people have been part of it. So you know, those are all the things signified within our logo, and they all mean something. I'm a firm believer that. Colors, symbols, you know, they all mean something. And we want it to have value in, in the meaning of, uh, of the overall logo. That's amazing. You know, it's great to put such thought into it. And, you know, I, I love the, especially the the reasons for it, you know, the, the blood of our forefathers and for, you know, mothers and the growth is really important, obviously, in the, in the scope of diversity and inclusion, you know, so congrats on, on that. And thank you for, for inviting me to be a part of Black Coaches Canada. You know, I feel really privileged and um you know th there's there's some big names up there so it, it's great to see and be able to work with people like yourself and and Bunbury and you know lots of other celebrated coaches on there so so thank you for inviting me to be a part of that yeah we're just getting going and like I said our website's not fully up yet it'll be up in the next uh, few weeks but we definitely invite anybody to come and join us even right now at blackcoaches.ca there is a, a document there that kind of doubles our website for now called an executive summary it's everything you would see in a website um, you know, and we just haven't had a chance to put it all up, but it's going to, it's going to happen in the next couple of weeks. And on top of that, there's a member registration form. You can register to be part of the association. It's free. Uh, you know, it doesn't cost you anything, just register. And, uh, you know, um, in the next few weeks, we will get all the reasons to join in terms of benefits as a member, but definitely if you read that executive summary documentation, it'll explain everything to you and you will see that there should be, you know, enough value for you to want to join our association. Awesome. Awesome. Well done, Paul. Again, actually, before we, we dive right into the, the main topic here, you know, what do you think about this, this farce that was the Super League that just happened very quickly? <laughs> sure, very quickly. In a nutshell, it's a fight over money, right? It's got nothing to do with football or the fans, whatever. It's, it's a fight over money. And it, and it made sense that the owners driving it were owners from the North American system. I mean, good, better, and different. Not, again, this is not judging anybody or chastising or making comment. It's just facts, right? Uh, you know, MLS is a closed system. CPL is a closed system. We don't have promotion relegation. We don't have open whatever. We don't have a lot of, you know, um, community ownership of, of stuff. It's just a different model, right? In terms of what we believe in or what we have uh, come about in North America, given our culture, our society, our history. Um, you know, you're, you're dealing with Europe that has football clubs that have been in existence for almost 100, 100 plus years, 50, 60 plus years, right? So there's history. There's ways of operating that have been, uh, you know, since uh, ingrained, even generational in terms of, when you're a fan, you know, you're fanatical when you talk about fans, but they're not fans, they're followers, right? Mm -hmm. Like they follow anywhere you go, we'll follow. You look at the chants, the songs, Manchester, you know, Chelsea, so on and so forth, right? Uh, it's, it's a different culture altogether. So to betray those fans now and say, it's all about money. Well, where's that coming from? From these, you know, American, um, you know, ownership ideologies that say, hey, we should have a close system with the best, the best, and we should uh, be able to make the money. Um, you know, the money, follow the money. I always tell you, you look at it, follow the money, right? The money is about making money off of events. And what's that event? That's World Cup, that's Euro, 
right? And if you look at it now, we're getting wise in North America here. We're going to have our own Champions League. We're going to have a Nations Cup. We're going to have all these competitions. Why? Because it drives money. There's nothing wrong with that. That's the system we live in. It's, we live in a capitalistic society, right? Yeah. But uh, to destroy other things along the way when people have been existing for how long, it's going to be problematic, right? So this league was founded on the idea that, you know, they need to make more money. And obviously, you know, they're seeing that now in, in COVID, it's difficult times, how much money they're losing. These clubs that you see, we're going to go to be in the, uh, the ESL, European Super League. We're already having some financial difficulties prior to COVID. COVID yeah. has just exacerbated that. It's for them to want to say, let's take another look at, uh, you know, how we can do something different to make more money. And it's not even about the fans. It's about the worldwide revenues that you're seeing online now because people you know, are, are, are believing, you know, there's fans all over the world. Like I said, not followers, but fans all over the world now who you, will, you know, put on a jersey and, you know, switch to another jersey. We grew up in a time and, you know, you look at a lot of, you know, European fans, they grew up in a time whereby you don't switch allegiances, you know, no. you don't put on another jersey, which, what, what are you a fan of, you know? So, so that's a big part of, um, uh, of, of the culture or the ideologies behind the problem, first of all. I mean, the concept makes sense. I get it. But do I really agree with it? Not really. I think that move would have done more harm to football than helping football because we know this idea. I mean, again, it's, it's an idea. It doesn't necessarily work in North America, but the idea that we develop players to the grassroots level, we push them up and they move on to higher platforms and everybody kind of benefits. Not, not quite really in North America. And, you know, there's been lots of lawsuits and challenges along the way around that in Canada and even in, in the States. Uh, because again, we have a pay-to-play system. So who owns the rights to solidarity to the development of that player? And that's also our, our Achilles heel because without having a true egalitarian, free and open system to develop players, we, we know that we, we miss a lot of the best players too as well, right? Definitely. But that's where I see, you know, the CPL has provided a great platform um, an opportunity for some of these young players. You know, you've already seen some young guys like out of Ottawa, you know, uh, Antoine Coupland, who's 16 years old, you know, playing on Ottawa and, and getting the opportunity that if the CPL wasn't here, he might have never had, you know, he might have to go down south to South America or Europe, wherever to get these opportunities. And as somebody like yourself, you know, you said you got better by playing with people who were older than you and, you know, much better than you. And I, I had similar um, success too here locally playing up and, you know, playing an age group up and with our under 16 provincial team playing against the men's, you know, that's, that's how you develop quicker. So it's great to see that we have that now. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's not the, the final product, obviously, but it's, it's good to, to have something like that in Canada to be able to springboard um, players of all colors and, and, and backgrounds. Definitely needed hundred percent. I mean, you know, something that we needed for a long time, you know, you can't not have a domestic pro league and expect to, to reach the top or have players going to the top. Right. Cause you know, like you said, where are they going to play? They have to always leave. But you know, the positive thing is it's here, good, bad, and different. You know, you're always going to have people who fall down on either side of the issue, but at the end of the day, you know, I'm a firm believer, you know, if you've got half the water in the cup, it's still better than no water at all. Right. Mm -hmm. you know, just as long as, you know, there's an opportunity for all of us to be included. Right. And, you know, we're seeing that though. We're starting to see that now, like you said, so, you know, kudos and, 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 you know, best, to the league and to uh, and to what they've done and how they've been inclusive. It's just, you know, there's some good work, but there's still work to be done too. I'm never a fan to just stop and rest of my laws and pat myself in the back. Um, you know, you can pat yourself in the back, but keep going along the way, you know? And so, you know, I think that the whole idea of this super league was these guys want to stop, pat themselves in the back and then take all the money too, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I, you, we saw the reaction. Overall, uh, the reactions there, whether you agree with fans or not, you know, people will tell you kind of how, how they, they feel and, and what they believe in stuff. And, you know, we've heard loud and clear across the board in many places. I'm not sure many people said that this is a good thing. I mean, I'm pretty sure there are some people who believe it is, but in general, though general consensus, not to say that 
you know, crowd, crowd, uh, crowd ideology is the best way to go. But in general, if you can't sell something to people, then they're not going to buy it, right? But I don't think it's done. I don't think you've heard the last of it. I think, you know, you're going to hear it again after this, right? You're going to hear it again. So who knows, you know, to be continued, right? Yeah, I mean, Fontino Paris doesn't seem to want it to go away. And he's, you know, talking a lot of uh, big words, like there's, you know, contracts and there's, uh, there's, you know, there's, there's contracts in place that says that they can't just walk away. So it's, it, it'll be interesting to see how it unfolds over the next uh, months and years. But, you know, one thing that as we look at, you know, those happening super far away in Europe there and uh, as Canadian soccer, you know, starts to on its path to, you know, CONCACAF Champions League and all these things. What do you see as um, some of the things that we need to work on in, in Canada and North America to make sure that we don't end up on that same trajectory with the Super League and those types of, you know, greedy owners um, controlling the, the narrative of, of football and the beautiful game. You're going to kind of always have a bit of that because at the end of the day, people are in business to make money, right? And then people say, well, you know, how do we behoove them? Because, you know, these guys are here to, to just earn a living and to make their money. But, you know, there's a lot of historical privilege and things baked into that too as well. People can't afford or, you know, can't have the same access and same opportunities. It doesn't mean that um, it should only be for the few, right? You know, if, if it's the world's game, it should be for kind of all. And as much as you can make it, you know, it, it's impossible to think that, um, you know, everybody should participate or has the means to, but at the same time, you want to have that at least opportunity or ability to, right? Mm. And that's really what, what's the most important message you're sending. It's when people don't have that opportunity or ability or are shut out, so that is the challenge, right? And that's kind of what they were doing. So as long as, as a league, the league continues to grow and, and has as its mandate to look at other, other uh, avenues to have inclusivity, not just only on the football field, but in the back room and also at the... Uh, the board and also at the ownership table, right? Mm. As long as they're willing to have diversity in all those areas and willing to entertain having that, I'm pretty sure that the league will continue to grow and continue to be a positive force. Um, you know, a good job has been done in both years given, you know, the situation of the pandemic and everything else. And a lot of people are looking at Canada as we move towards 2026 in the World Cup. We just have to make sure that we always look at things with more than one lens, right? Um, you know, a diversity lens, uh, you know, um, an equity lens, a gender lens, you know, not just one, you know, homogeneous lens that says things are this way and, and they've always been this way and they're going to continue to be this way, right? When you come from that perspective, you know, you're, you're signing the death knell because there's no creativity uh, in, and diversity in thought and in ideas and in ways of thinking and growth, right? And there's so many studies out now that show you why diversity is good and how companies make money off of diversity. Yeah. You know, so it's important for us to, to, to continue to have that lens as we grow this league, as I said, you know, the goal is to get to 16 teams. There's six more teams to, to be brought in. And, you know, it, it also has to be across the landscape too of the country. Uh, mm -hmm. But, you know, our country in of itself presents challenges to travel, right? Like, you know, people don't really even think about that or realize how insane any pro league is to, to set up in this country compared to anywhere else in the world. We do not face the same challenges we face anywhere else in the world to have a national sports league, whether it be football, baseball, basketball, you know, hockey, soccer, whatever it is, right? So definitely those factors also come into play, you know, traveling from Halifax and having to do two, three games and travel, you know, wherever, that's a different burden than, you know what I mean? Than what you'd have, uh, you know, you look at a country, I was in a discussion really quickly with a gentleman from, from, um, from Netherlands. And I said to him, how many countries do you have within an hour to an hour and a half of, of where you are? So those seven countries, <laughs> how many pro leagues do you have? Or eight pro leagues, how many divisions in each of those pro leagues? About three or four. So you start to do the math, you know, uh, 25 players a team, 
by you know maybe 10, 10 teams, that's conservative per league. So that's 50 teams per, per, per country, right? 50 teams per country by you know eight countries. You know what I mean? Start doing the math and you see how much opportunity there is for players, right? And that's all in a space of you know about half of Ontario, right? You know what I mean? Like that's maybe from let's say Ottawa to, to, to Windsor only. You know what I mean? Whereas now you're trying to do the same thing across the country that stretches coast to coast. So we do I mean, it's it, it's tough, but I think it is important that you still try to, you know, and, and that's where I think the CPL has done really well by implementing, you know, a minimum requirement for under 21 players, you know, this requirements for homegrown players. And, you know, here in Halifax, we have our own goal. Um, we want to have six specific, you know, homegrown players here from the local region to make it onto the Wanderers team. So I think that is important as a, as a young league that you don't, you don't just take all these players coming from other places and you, you don't have your success of your league based on foreign um, players like you know because as much as that's worked for the Premier League I don't, there's there's a lot of negative that has come from that as well for certain clubs so I think it's 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 good to start on that trajectory but what are some things you think that you know we could do additionally outside of you know allowing a specific amount of young players and and uh, and homegrown players what what is what else is, can be done to make sure that you continue that in that same light. In the same light as what specifically, sorry? You know, just in terms of creating pathways and 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 continuity so that you don't end up in a situation like um, like they did in Europe with the Super League. Well, I think part of it too is, is making sure that there's still access to all, right? Like in certain places, like when the league first started, they wanted this big, huge campaign across the country. I know it's cost money and stuff, but you know, if they could do more camps and more uh, open trials, for people to come in as walk-ons and to see more. And I know now it's all about scouting and about mm-hmm. scouting databases. Well, say, oh, you're talking nonsense because they already know all who's there and what's going on. But are you actually still looking at the player? It was only the referral system. They signed that deal with, um, what's it, uh, Something 21, I forget the name of that company, that's going to bring in all the foreign players uh, for scouting and whatnot, right, from, from Europe. So that, that deal in of itself, the league sign, is going to be bringing in more foreign players. Mm-hmm. Well, why can't we be doing some of that same work too? You know, there's some guys who have these lists now, Canada, Canadians abroad, right? Um, and track a lot of players who are abroad. I know that there's a Canadian national database with a national team that also tracks players abroad too. So more tracking and, you know, giving more opportunities and looking at kids, even sometimes that, you know, you may not necessarily get a chance to think or look at because, you know, how, how do you get that player at 16, 17 abroad or into the league, like you said, that doesn't have those experiences. Um, you look at even in terms of USL too and what it's done for the States, but, you know, here, you know, a lot of players came back and play, played here, so they get minutes. So are you going to sit on the bench of an MLS team and not get minutes and not get seen, or are you going to play in this league and get seen, right? And so these are the important things that at certain levels of development need to happen and, you know, need to have more types of uh, showcase games and games even against community teams. I would love to see they have like an under-21, you know, kind of academy that are with the, uh, with the, the, the CPL teams that then goes out and plays against, you know, local teams and local clubs and you know, right across the country to get a look at some of these players, right? Um, in various markets so it doesn't have to be only a closed system it's much more open you know scouting is we all think we have it down because we know who's gonna make a player not at all somebody sees something different in somebody else yes there are consistencies and standards but you know uh, nobody can tell me what makes a player nobody can point to a player at 16 17 and bet and say that guy's gonna end up being you know being a superstar although i'm pretty sure a lot of people will tell you right now that uh, they pegged alfonso at that time <laughs> you know so so I beg to differ at the end of the day, but, um, you know, but at the same point, you know, that's an anomaly though, at the end of the day, there's always going to be anomalies. But I think if they could do more work around that area specifically in terms of, you know, really providing that access and getting a look at more, because at the end of the day, it's still a very close, uh, small, close system. 
Um, you know, you look at uh, the players coming in, argu arguably or not, you know, there's only eight teams in the league. We're going to get to 16, we might get to 10 uh, in the next year or two. And, you know, when you look at players that rotate and change and what they're looking for, a coach is looking for maybe three spots, you know, per year, unless there's, you know, fire so you get rid of a lot of the team. But you get generally, a lot of the players are going to bring in a recycle players from that league or recycle players from USL2 or whatever have you. So yeah, we're already starting to see that for sure. So how much opportunity is there really for these young guys to, to get out there and be seen? It's great now that we have the, the, the college draft. We need to have a, a bigger draft than that, like, you know, not only university, but also college. There's a lot of kids who go to school in the States, a lot of kids who play, you know, OCAA, CCAA, ACC, whatever. They're not getting looked at as well. And, you know, right now it's only the university, uh, the university players being looked at. So it's a start once again, but we do have work to do yeah. in terms of uh, continuing to grow the league and growing opportunities. I think there's just, we have to start thinking outside the box and stop, you know, only going to the, the, the typical structures and the typical systems that we always go to. Right. That's the easy answer. And that's what, you know, diversity and and, uh, you know, thinking outside the box and, and, and pathways and opportunities are, you know, looking at even a group like black coaches and seeing what we know and, you know, could pull together. I've done this many, many times over the years, pulling together teams and players for even showcases. That's been something as part of our community all the time. You yeah. know, I give a showcase team or, you know, even back in the day growing up, how I ended up getting my scholarship going back in the story. Um, I ended up getting a scholarship to George Washington University. It's 23,000 U.S. back then to go when it was 60 cents on the dollar. You think I could afford it the other 20, uh, the other 20, 30,000 US when it's 60 cents on the dollar? Heck no. But I got that from playing with, with uh, Scarborough, Zuri, going down into uh, the Potomac tournament, which was, you know, back in, uh, in 80, 88, shows you uh, my age. And that, that tournament is still somewhat of a big tournament, not as big as it used to be, but the coach saw me play there and, uh, and liked me and offered me something. And then I was really trying to get into Howard and finally got to the coach. And then, you know, he had no money left. It was late and he offered me a $2,000 scholarship. Back then it was like, you know, 10, 12 grand to go to school at Howard plus I was in books. So it cost about 18 to 20 US. And so that wasn't an option for me, but you know, maybe I should have went to Howard, you know what I mean? But again, these are all the things you got to take into, into consideration, uh, you know, as part of the overall process. So if we have more opportunities, like a lot of these, you know, you see a lot of people across the country developing showcase teams, travel teams, you know, um, opportunities are just pathways. I've done it myself many times going down to play against university directory under um, directly. I went down and played against two uh, American uh, universities and, you know, the goalie um, got a scholarship offer. Why? Because we lost 7-1, but mm -hmm. the goalie stood in his head. So wow. the coach said, wow, that kid, no matter what, how bad it got in the game, he just kept going and made a few cut clutch saves. But that's under 16, under 17, playing against a division two, you know, top three, top four team, you know, you're not walking or going in there to win. And they're not no. easy on you, right? You're going down there to understand and learn you know, what, it, what it's like in that environment. And so we need to have more of those kinds of opportunities, which people are doing across the country. But I think that also we need to see, you know, the pro leagues do the same thing, provide the same opportunities. So we don't have to always travel so far. We can get a game against the Wanderers or a game against the, uh, against the whatever, you know, have you, right? Like maybe even, again, just spitballing here, but maybe even having, you know, those under 21 teams play uh, prior to a game. So the fans are already there putting together an all-star game whereby you might have one or two games over the Derby. Maybe Halifax has under 21 a team that comes down, yeah, a little more money, but travels with a team for that one or two games in Toronto and plays against the York Nine and plays against a, a um, uh, you know, an all-star team and plays against a provincial team or whatever have you. Just again, sure. all these sure. opportunities, providing different avenues and pathways to get more players, more games and get seen more. Yeah, yeah money's involved, but, you know, that's part of the investment. And I'm pretty sure if we're doing things, um, you know, alongside of what's already existing, um, you know, it helps to minimize the cost. Now, again, my ideas might be you know, uh, off-kilter, but these are the things you have to start thinking about if we can create a lot of alternative pathways, working with a number of uh, various communities too as well, we're gonna see much you know, a wider pool of players 
And at the end of the day, it's not going to be reduced to, you know, okay, we've got, uh, you know, eight pro teams. So that's three players per year, that's 24 players. And then the national team, maybe another, you know, 10, 20, you're talking about 50 players. Do we only have 50 players out there across the country who deserve more opportunities? I, I think there's a heck of a lot more, right? Agreed. So uh, what can be, uh, what can be seen, what can be found? I completely agree. And, you know, and, and continuing on that, once you get, you know, this diverse pool of players, um, you know, given that racism is, is, is a heavy subject right now in, in 2021 and, and even before, um, how do we protect those players, you know, given there's already been situations of, of racism uh, brought up in the CPL? Um, how do we protect these players, you know, these black players, these uh, minority players? I think that um, there has to be some some stringent guidelines around this behavior. If we're talking about zero tolerance or no tolerance, we have to have these things stated, documented, part of policy, well publicized. People know it has to be talked about in the locker rooms in terms of meetings with the teams, in terms of the players. We have to listen to the players and get their feedback as to what challenges or things they see uh, behind the scenes. Uh, you know, if, if things are being said and done behind the scenes that you know administration is not seeing, everybody always gets their back up and says, "Oh no, not me, not happening here." You know it exists and it happens. Uh, we have to address it and nail it head on and say, we know this stuff exists. How can we root it out, right? And it's not, again, it's not, this is not to point fingers at people and say that, um, you know, to say that we're perfect or, you know, we're, we're, we're so good that these things aren't happening. They happen. It's part of society. Everywhere you go, they happen, right? We all have prejudice, you know, we're not necessarily racist, but we all have prejudice and those prejudices come in different ways, right? And, you know, part of it is education and learning. Who you are today is not the person, hopefully, you're going to be in in the future and the only way to, to change the attitudes ideologies languages that we all speak around the game is to is to address it right rather than hide from it and and try to protect it and i understand from a risk management protection standpoint you have to you know you have to watch what you're saying and what's you know and what's out there but we all know these things exist so instead of my my, my thought is just instead of hiding from it let's embrace it and address it and try to root it out and deal with it and make sure that there's very stringent measures that are well documented that if it is happening, there will be consequences. There's nothing worse to people than when something happens, they don't feel there's any consequences or things go silent, right? And then you don't hear anything, it kind of disappears. That, that's what really gets the people because they want to know what the resolution is. Justice and, and quick resolutions yeah. at that. Exactly. Justice to people is they know that. And even sometimes things can't be quick. It takes time. But as long as you're communicating, I always say this, you got to communicate along the way and tell them where you're at. And sometimes yeah. communicating that nothing's happening can be good or bad, but you need to communicate it, right? Rather than, you know, radio silence. Nothing worse than radio silence because then people will then conjecture. They conjecture anyways, but I definitely just think that, you know, in a nutshell, to answer your question, it comes back to, you know, having those open dialogues with the teams and clubs and management uh, by having maybe some open town halls and discussing, you know, uh, whatever you can legally around, you know, people's, uh, people's shared experiences. And then, you know, documenting what we want as an overall league and also as a culture, um, you know, and then making sure people are held accountable when, when they come up against those, uh, those, those um, rules and those guidelines, right? Because nothing worse than when those things come up, nothing is done, you know? Definitely. No, it's, it's, it's very important to know. And with that, you know, where do you see the future of the CPL? You know, what would you like to see given where we've already started? Like I was saying before, I think, you know, growth into a full expansion 16 uh, team league. If I was to go even one step further, I'd love to see a, a true division two start up. You know, I mean, as much as people talk about the same pro leagues, they're not necessarily going to division two, they're division three. It'd be great to have a division two, even if it is regionalized or by, you know, you have a, you know, a Western region, a central region, an Eastern region in a sense. I think there's enough room for it. 
mm-hmm. by then they meet in a national championship kind of playoff, right? So it's still, you know, which is kind of what happens with the NPSL, in the States, and happens in sort of a little bit USL too. But the, I think there's enough room for that. Um, you know, there's enough appetite for it. Is it too many levels of soccer? I don't know. It's just to get more players playing at the various levels so they can, you know, be more engaged. And, um, you know, I think that when you look at university and college soccer, there's still a pretty good appetite um, for that. It's just to kind of mirror something on those levels whereby we can see, you know, some en- enough leagues played in, in a regional setting. Uh, our challenges, of course, around, you know, seasons and weather are short as well, too. But it'd be great to see, you know, again, if, I'm, if you're giving me the, the blank canvas and I can paint what I want on it, you know, it'd be great to see, you know, a 16-team league across the country, Division Two, and then, you know, your, your, your semi-pros below that, your pro-ams that feed into that, right? And mm. all of them are able to participate in, in the open... Uh, Voyager Cup, whereby, you know, even if you're a Division Three team and that's all you can really sustain within your market, uh, within your area, you still get a shot, you know what I mean, at um, uh, at that top cup, right? You know what I mean? Definitely. And I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll ask a tough question, in the, especially in the scope of inclusion, you know, when you're looking long term. Is it more important to have, um, you know, double the teams and, and a, a Div 2 and a Div 3 or should it be more important for us to be aiming to get a women's league of um, equivalent equivalent level, you know, with eight teams and all that, as opposed to being ambitious to get the the men's league even further along? So, now you, you know, kind of tricked me. You asked me up front about um, uh, you asked me up front about what we should do with the CPL on on, uh, on the side of what's existing. Not that we should, <laughs> not that we should have a CPL women's league. I think that um, uh, it's something that is needed. Um, I know we've had discussion, you know around it, uh, you know, at various levels and different places that I kind of work with, right? It, it's something that's needed and, and has mm-hmm. committed to in some way, shape or form. I'm not sure what that's going to be, but, you know, enough people, I think, in this country are having that discussion and are wanting to see that happen. And it's also a need. I mean, you know, the excuses and arguments around, uh, you know, finances, um, you know, again, to me, their excuses. It comes down to are people going to buy in enough as they have in the men's side? We're still proving the case right now. It's still not over yet because again you know it's unfortunate timing that COVID has had a, yeah. a definite um, uh, hit on, on on sports in general but you know positively coming out of this uh, when we look at all the stats and numbers around soccer um, in Canada on the female side there's more than enough stats demographics backing to say that there's a need but again yeah. they face the same challenge as we said before in terms of locations distance where should it be how do we form it you know all that kind of stuff right and, uh, you know, I don't have all the answers, but I, I do believe that, you know, regional play to some extent is important, you know, yeah. even if it is a division to promote it up to whatever, even if you have, uh, you know, X amount, uh, even if it's only a 14 league, and then you have maybe some of these regional teams in a D2 playing up into that, right? Uh, as as, as a, a bonus championship, again, it shows us if they can compete, right? Yeah, uh, definitely. You know, at the end of the day, I agree with you 100%, it is needed. And, you know, even to do an, an 18 league, uh, is there enough talent in the country? Of course there is. Would that town come back home? I don't know right now because it's all about spending money to, in the league. And we know that a lot of places in Europe are spending money. But on, on the down on the other side, you know, I'm not going to get too much into discussion, but I know a few people I've talked to about it. But at the same time, we think that there's tons of support at the top levels in Europe and not really as much as they, we think there is. There is. We're finding no. out that uh, on the back side, a lot of promises being made aren't being fulfilled, whether that's because it's COVID or not. But we look at, you know, the, the, the Champions League and the teams in the Champions League on the, on the women's side, right? Right across from Italy, right back to Spain, Portugal, and England and France, right? But once again, it's the teams that are getting the most money, the most resources are doing the best, right? And that's yeah. the, that's not by accident. So it's I don't think it's any coincidence that the women's, they have what's called a super league, 
Yeah. <laughs> so I think a lot of those issues are around that construct of the Super League and uh, the money going to the top, like same, same with the men's, the men's uh, proposed Super League. Yeah, and, and it's also ideologies in those countries too as well, right, as a society. And, you know, we're, we're hopefully changing and hopefully more progressive, uh, but it's, it's something that's needed. Um, you know, it, it comes back to, you know, are people going to pay to watch women's football? And, and, you know, and resoundingly, the answer is yes. Do you know what I mean? And that's mm-hmm. the challenge. Like, there's so much stats coming out, but people don't believe in that. It's, it's just, it shouldn't even be about should people pay or even the question I asked is, is not even a proper question. At the end of the day, are people paying to consume content? We, we found it more than anything else. They are. It's just yeah. content. And the question is, is it good content? Yeah, it's good content. Different game in different ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, you know, it's content. And, you know, it's been proven now through the pandemic that there's enough room and money to be had for that content. And so that's where it starts from there. Is there a need? 100%. Do I back it? 100%. In any way I, I can, uh, you know, in lending my voice and making decisions or anything, I will back that 100%. I think it's needed. But again, it's just going to take some time. Uh, for us to get there and you know uh, hopefully it's it's a lot sooner than it is later uh, in terms of the people that are involved that have financial acumen to put towards this and the right discussions are had and the right partners come to the table because again you know nobody and and no sport is an island it's done from multi-facets right definitely and as somebody who supports both uh, Arsenal and Barcelona who both have great women's programs and great women's teams you know, I, I'd like to see that continue across more teams in, in Europe and uh, in South America. And, uh, you know, things like the Juventus women's team who, you know, had, I think it was about 40,000 plus um, show up to one of their games playing in the same stadium as the men's do. So, yeah. you know, that that's where I'd like to see the women's game get to. And there's no reason what it shouldn't. Um but that brings me to the point, what team do you support? I'm a, I'm a Gooner and a Barcelona fan, but what team do you support? Well, it's funny because, you know, you have all these different, uh, like I said, you can't support one team and then switch to support another, people will kill you. <laughs> growing, growing up, when I was younger, uh, my coach, my, my, my um, uh, dad's friend, my coach, my brother's team, we were big uh, Portuguese football fans, you know, Benfica, FC Porto, you know. Uh, um, you know but, but then, you know, I started to learn more about um, – uh, you know, Barcelona and uh, Johan Cruyff. I'm a big Johan Cruyff fan. Yeah. You know, his philosophies, his style of football, you know, what he brought to Camp Nou. But prior to that, during the era, uh, you know, uh, growing up and watching football in the EPL, I was a Liverpool fan because there was nothing to me bigger than John Barnes, you know? Mm. And, you know, you look at representation yourself, you see John Barnes and all what he stood for. And never mind, even he still speaks now, the problems of, of someone like that not getting into, you know, the senior levels of football in terms of administration. And, you know, people will say because he sucks, he's not a good coach, good manager, all those things you hear. But, you know, again, like we said, it's being given the opportunities. And yeah, I mean, the, the timing couldn't be more hilarious for people to make statements like that. When you get a guy like Ryan Mason getting an opportunity at Spurs, like what has he done to, to deserve to be at a club like that? There's many black coaches who, you know, are way more qualified than he is. But still, you know, it, it, it's, it's, the, it's the same problem. Well, the issue is, you know, again, from my, you know, sociological background, it's one of meritocracy, this idea that you get your, your positions and your, your success based off of merit, how good a player you are or how, how good you are for winning games as a coach, whatever. And that's not true at all. No. And it's got a little bit of that, but we know that, you know, how many coaches fail their way forward, right? They continue to fail their way forward and fail their way forward and fail their way forward until they kind of get it. But if you never get that chance to fail your way forward, then how, how do you even begin to get there? You never get the chance, right? Exactly. Um, you know, and a lot of guys who, who played at the highest level are speaking out. You know, just look at uh, Dwight Yorkie, right? Dwight talks about that. And, you know, look at someone of his experiences. Think about it. He's got 
you know, Sir Alex Ferguson, arguably the number one top coach in the whole world throughout almost all time, if you want to look at it that way. They've done a Harvard Business Review on him and studied him to talk about, you know, how great a coach he is and what he did at Manchester. And, you know, we have a player like Dwight York that was one, arguably or not one of the top names in the game at Dover's era, you know, and he has the top coach as a reference in, on speed dial that can refer to him and say whatever, but yet he can't even get an interview. Now, maybe there are other reasons for that that we won't get into whatever they say, it's this, that, the other. But the bottom line is, is that when we continue to see these, and it's not just a one-off, it starts with, you know, these one examples that we bring forward. And then we continue to see, you know, case after case after case after case, then something's wrong here. You know what I mean? And that's what we're saying now that we're, we're seeing that. So in terms of, uh, you know, being a fan of certain, certain uh, teams and eras, you know, um, you know, for me, it was Barcelona. I don't want to be like a, a bandwagon jumper. You know, and then, you know, but if you look historically all the way back, how long Barcelona was a force, you know, mm. um, you know, with Ronaldinho and, you know, um, and what uh, Johan Cruyff did for, for that organization. But again, it's all based out, off of the Dutch foundation systems, right? Yeah. And I mean, they need to kind of refine their identity right now. They're going through an identity crisis. So it'll be interesting to see how these next couple of years shape up for, for Barcelona and Catalonia. And Manchester's uh, success came directly from, uh, uh, you know, Mühlenstein that came from that same Dutch camp, you know, and that same way of playing that same philosophy. And he brought that to Manchester, right? And if you look at, you know, arguably the amount of players that were, you know, developed Messi, Iniesta, Xavi, you look at, you know, the class of 92, um, you know, with um, uh, um, Beckham and, you know, all those boys, those guys aren't developing one and two players at a time. They're developing five, six, seven, you know, the highest numbers, but it's all based off of that same system. And, and if you look further, that system is also based off of the French foundation academy system. So there are certain people who know how to develop, you know, and have always known how to develop, not to say that other countries don't or can't, but some people just have a winning way. And when you are able to uh, to look at that, it makes you successful. So that's why I'm a fan. Of. I'm a fan of the Dutch orange and this idea of total football. Um, you know, I, I even try to coach that way. It takes years, but, you know, I, I had a girls team and by the end of the season, we got to that uh, for OPDL. And, you know, we ended up winning the last game of the season. Uh, you know, we did well with 500, you know, not the best or the worst, but um, the main thing was getting the, the players and the girls to grow and getting them to play different positions. So by the end of the game, my center back was playing striker, my winger was playing midfield, my midfield was playing wing back, my wing back was playing, you know, in the midfield, they, 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 and, and they did it on their own. I didn't tell them when to switch or how to switch, whatever. They just started yeah. to understand this concept of, you know, being able to play and take up responsibility on the field. You know, it was earlier, not, now it's all called positional and um, uh, positional football and, you know, um, roles and responsibilities. You're seeing a lot of that in the game now in terms of, you know, the, the work that Pep is doing and everybody, everybody's copying, everybody kind of mimics, you know, what's the most famous thing but you know i believe in you know you make your own and the game is fluid but based on that system so that's i'm a big fan of you know the dutch kind of initial foundation system and I'm, I'm a fan of barcelona but not so much now anymore um so you know i'm kind of uh looking for a new team so to speak let's say <laughs> <laughs> well we got plenty of room at, uh, at arsenal might not be the best time to be uh, an arsenal fan but <laughs> we'll always welcome you there um so to wrap up you know there's kind of hand in hand questions here. So the first is, uh, you know, where do you see yourself in five years? And then we'll follow up with uh, what is your dream job in soccer? I always wanted to be a coach, you know, but not so much as of a coach at the highest or pro level, more so of a coach, more like a development academy coach, really just developing a broad age group. I have a love for working with kids, like I said, because of my own experiences from everywhere I've gone, I've tried to build programs from 16 to, to 21, 22, 23, whatever, and, you know, oversee multiple teams with assistant coaches beneath me because I believe in terms of developing coaches as well. A lot of the coaches that I have, uh, you know, with me, you know, for years have gone on to, uh, you know, do other things. And a lot of the players I've played through me have gone on to be, uh, to be coaches now, you know, all throughout the landscape. So I just love that model, seeing people grow and even surpass yourself. 
Um, I still want to be involved in football. I don't know where that is. Where I see myself now, I had visions and ideas before, but I think COVID has thrown a wrench into all that. Um, So for me, you know, I'm looking more on the administrative side to see if I can lend my skills to more administration. Um, You know, I looked, uh, spent a lot of years, six, seven days on the pitch, you know, every single night. Um, You know, you don't get to see family and wives and all stuff much. So this time of being home has been really, uh, really beneficial for me in terms of just looking at things differently. So, you know, I'm hoping that even from somewhere an administration perspective, I could take up certain roles um, that's still involved with the game. Um, you know, w- within the next four or five years, that's what I'm looking at, um, you know. Uh, we'll see how, how it all plays out, but definitely if I can be involved in some way, just helping to continue to develop that next generation, um, that's really what, what I want to do more than anything else, not so much just only coach to be on the field, right? Because awesome. uh, after a while, everybody, you know, has uh, the same kind of things, you know, like I said, Dex and O's eventually winning the games. It's great for that momentary, you know, but uh, overall it's fleeting. It's much better to see people find that success in life and you know that person say yeah coach I'm here because of you kind of thing you know and so that's really what's uh, really fulfilling to me why anything else where I'd like to see myself five years down the road you know uh, I'd love to be standing on 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 uh, on the sideline uh, whether it be part of a board or association whatever at that next world cup coming here to Canada you know, I'd love to see that we have representation uh, standing on that sideline imagine the the goal we could have to have you know not just you know only myself from black perspective but to have you know um, Southeast Asian, Asian, you know, whatever, Indigenous people all standing on that sideline in Canada when we see the World Cup come. To me, that's success, right? Being able to see that for the next generation, we have kids all across the country look up and, 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 and see that. And that's why for me, more than anything else, I was more than anything else overly excited that the under-23 uh, team that played in the, uh, in the uh, you know, Olympic qualifiers on the men's side, although they lost. But look at the diversity we had. I mean, yeah. with our best talent, but to be able to call on people last minute and look at the performances now, you know, good, bad, or indifferent. You know, it's Mexico. We've only beaten Mexico, I think, like twice or three times ever. You yeah. Know? But, uh, you know, it came down to one mistake, uh, you know, in the 60th whatever minute that, uh, you know, between the center back and the goalie. And then, you know, it, it happens and that's it. It's done. You know, I but think they got experience now and they'll learn from those experiences. Exactly. So looking at that and projecting forward to see that kind of, you know, diversity at the table uh, where we saw, you know, Southeast Asian, we saw, you know, Asian, we saw, you know, black, we saw Indian, we saw, we saw, you know, some really great diversity uh, on that team and represent on the field. And, and again, it wasn't lacking. It's another thing to say if it was lacking, it wasn't lacking. And again, at the end of the day, were we good enough? No, we're not. We know that we have to catch Mexico, catch the United States and catch, you know, Honduras in order to be at that level. So we're still, we're still playing catch up, but, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that we're going to get there, you know, by, by now in the World Cup. And I'm hopeful that we also, in getting there, see that diversity alongside. So personally, our own personal goal, I'd love to be standing it's part of that mix, whether it be part of Canada soccer, whether it be part of, you know, a club or a team or whatever have you, or administration just at the table, but also being there seeing diversity. That's, you know, for me, a kind of great goal because it just, you know, it sparks, um, you know, ignites that fire in the next generation. Whereby exactly. somebody might say, yeah, you know, I, I aspire to this because I saw that, you know, like it was for me, you know, I, I aspired because I saw John Barnes, you know, and and, and so forth. And that, that's what we're missing and we need to see more of that you know, people aren't fully getting, but we're now starting to get as a culture and society. So hopefully in the future, I'll still be involved in the game. You know, I'm, you know, I'll still be doing some administrative things. we got lots of work to do with Black Coaches Canada. So maybe I'll spend some time there. I mean, I think there's lots of work to be done with Canada soccer as well. Who knows how long they'll have me, as long as they'll have me, you know, I'm, uh, I'll, I'll do my part. And uh, hopefully we can make some long lasting change and continue to open the door for, you know, young men like yourself and others to, to come through. 
I share that same goal. You know, I'd like to be at one of the venues in 2026, showing how diverse and how much growth the not only the Canadian Premier League has done, but just Canada soccer as a whole has done. So I hope to be there standing next to you, my brother. And uh, I really want to thank you for joining me today. And uh, your collaboration, your mentorship is, is much appreciated. And I look forward to continuing uh, working together. And as we come together from a ways, always coming together to work together for change. Take care all the Halifax fans out there. See you guys. <laughs> all the best. On the pitch. Aluta, continue on.